this episode of the podcast. And then one day he said to me, he said, I've done a stupid thing. I said, what's that? He says, I've entered a, a massive race, a Gobi Desert, five-day Gobi Desert race. I said, what are you talking about? When is that? He said, oh, I don't know, in, in four months' time. So I said, tell me about this. He says, you, you have to run 40, 40, 40, 80, and 20 or something, five days, a marathon every day with a, half, with a double marathon on the fourth day. I said, are you mad? He said, yeah, I think so. And the next day he won again by about 10 minutes. And the next day he won by 20 minutes. And he ended up winning every single stage. And he won the whole race by an hour and a half or something. And he hasn't looked back. And that's, that's what he does. And I were running in the mountains. And we were talking about exactly this. And he was saying, yeah, he doesn't like his job. And I said, well, what would you like to do with your life? He says, I only just want to run. I just want to run on the mountains. I don't want to do anything else. I said, well, then that's your starting point. You know, you've got to work out how you make that work. And it worked. And now for my next number, I'd like to return to the classics. I'm gonna be happy, how could I not? Sitting in my little canoe When I'm sailing along the beautiful river Beautiful river with you You probably catch me laughing a lot the kind of thing that I do when I'm sailing along the beautiful river in a beautiful dream come true. Oh, I don't care about the weather, no. Let it rain, let it shine. Do you know how to repost on Instagram? No. Oh. Like, I can't take... So check out these photos from this weekend. Oh, nice. Yeah. It was... Super fun. It was like mini rad fun. You need to hit the the paper airplane to icon. Send it to people. And then you can put it on your story. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Holy shit. Now things are getting So tell tell everyone uh, what are you looking at. Okay, so I I just learned how to use Instagram even though I've had Instagram for years. But apparently, <clears throat> if you want to repost a bunch of rad photos that your friend took, you just hit the paper airplane and send it, not to your friends, but send it to your history. And then they see it. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so it's photos from Hemsedal. Uh, we were there this weekend. And did some steep skiing in a couple shoots. Because finally the snow has calmed down a bit, and it's uh, it's hard, but it slushes up when the sun gets on it. Uh, so you can go climb up it with crampons and then ski down steep stuff, and you don't have to worry about avalanches as much. But right now, what kind of sucks is it's not getting super warm. So a lot of times you get up there and it's just ice. And that's no fun. All right. Okay. We're, so, ta- we're talking. So you're, uh, you're Tyler. People yep. might know you from... Uh, we did a podcast a couple of years ago. We did one about... It's, uh, it was called the Tyler Jones's Buns of Steel. Yeah, it was the Buns of Steel because I was dealing with um, 
IT band issues and my knee was acting up. Uh, and mostly I found out it was like all my hip and everything was all weak. And so I found this guy called Strength Runner and he had an IT band workout and I started doing that a bunch. And there was also a Jane Fonda routine at the end. So I figured it was like a buns of steel action. It's good workout. I still do it every once in a while. Mm-hmm. You know, swimsuit season's coming up. In these crazy corona times, we're all going to be looking at each other from a distance, so it's even more important to have that well-sculpted ass. <laughs> and and for your, it's also split-short season, so maybe this year we can try a new trend. I guess underboob is a thing. Underboob? Underboob for girls. You know, they, like, show not cleavage, but, like, under the boob. <laughs> maybe for guys we can do, like, under butt, like really small split shorts and we can show like kind of the 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 butt under you know you know yeah, kind of like our our version of the cleavage yeah like our ass version of cleavage butt, but it's like ass cleavage but like the bottom of the cheek stay tuned <laughs> it'll be sweet <laughs> hey, this is episode number 98 98 that's a lot of episodes We're almost at 100 what do you think about that and a 98 is an A plus mm-hmm. in school. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's like you're doing really good. You didn't get a hundred, so you're not like crazy, mm. or you didn't cheat, or you didn't get greedy when you cheated. So 98 is a good. It's an even number. It's a solid, respectable. Like you're. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I actually already recorded the uh, the next two episodes, number ninety nine and and the hundred. Um, so if people want to listen to those, they can go into uh, patreon dot com slash neda project. I'll uh, link to the um, I'll link to the link in the the show notes. Uh, okay, so for uh, for this episode, uh, we're gonna talk to uh, a guy called Andrew Tunstall, and he's a uh, He's a South African, born in Scotland, who now lives in Spain, but he's stuck in the UK. <laughs> okay. So, wait, he's a South African, born in Scotland. So, his parents are from South Africa? Uh, I guess. Okay. And he lives in Spain for some reason to keep it... And then he's over in the UK. He's, like, over there doing what? Like, buying mayonnaise? Uh, he's there with the family because uh, Corona... Yeah, but why was he? Why did he? How did he get stuck there? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't okay, know. He's, well, so he's he's stuck in the UK. Uh, but he, does he want to go back to Spain? Or yeah, yeah, his whole family is there, so he's gonna go back. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So he he's a runner, and he's just like alone. He needs friends. No, no, we'll we'll get into this. <laughs> uh, I met uh, Andrew uh, like four or five years ago when I went to Spain to do an ultra race. So uh, that's how I met him, and I always wanted to do a podcast with uh, Andrew. And um, now, since everyone's stuck inside, uh, and I'm doing these uh, Zoom calls, I figured I'll just uh, call Andrew. So uh, that's uh, today's episode, and uh, I think we're gonna we should keep this uh, intro pretty short. I don't know. I think let's. Um, uh, I think maybe this episode is gonna attract some South Africans. They have a pretty big 
ultra running community down there and uh he knows um you know uh you know um uh, um ryan sands you know him right mm-hmm. or you know about him yeah. and um yeah they have a pretty big community down there and that's that's kind of my my goal with this podcast is to connect all running communities all over the world and uh, compare them and find the common denominators and um split shorts split shorts is common denominator <laughs> hello this is another one another one baby welcome to now is it alvor uh with hans christian and friends we're gonna be the best podcast that you ever did here and we're gonna thrill you we're gonna teach you we're gonna entertain you like britney spears once said there are those of us who observe and those of us who are here to entertain and we're here to entertain you bitch for example long distances around the world um, and you want to plot on your chart which that's just on your map the shortest direction if you're going long distances around the world the shortest direction is not a straight line because a straight line on a flat map is not a straight line when you put it back onto a globe wow i never thought of that but it makes sense if you track the shortest distance between say Cape Town and Rio, which is where I went. Yeah. And you put and you represent that route on a flat map. It's a big curve, and the curve is shorter. How do you find that curve? Uh, it's it's complicated, but I mean there are formulas that you can use to calculate it. When you did that, did you go for the curve or did you just go where no, the, the wind because, took you? Because it just depends on the wind. So right. You know. Right. And I wouldn't hurry. But if you think about a flat map and you think about going from Tierra del Fuego in the bottom of South America, and you imagine you imagine moving across your whole map, you say Australia, and you go in a straight line across the bottom of the map, that would be crazy because in actual fact, if you were flying on an airplane, the shortest route would be right over the South Pole. Yeah, right. Wouldn't it? Shit. The shortest route in an airplane would be to go from the South from South America right over the South Pole to Australia. That would be the shortest route. Yeah, but it doesn't look like it on a map. It looks like you're going down and off the map and coming back up the other side. It looks ridiculous. Do the planes take the the fastest routes? Yeah, well, again, Always. it depends on the on the on the air currents, but mostly, yeah. So they will often fly in a curve. So that's actually when funny when you look at the in-flight magazine on your next international flight. Yeah, and you see those lines that go say from Europe as, from a European hub to places like Australia. It's always a big curve. That's right. I always th- thought that was just because they wanted to try to kind of make a nice, <laughs> you think nice it's curve. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Because it looks nice on the map. No, that's because that's where they fly. Never uh, gave it a thought. And that's why the map behind you is bent. They've curved it to try and give it better proportions. Right. Yeah, I'm living uh, at a friend's house, and he's very. Uh, he's from the U.S. and he's got a uh, a map of America over there. So. I don't know. He's very, okay, very map-oriented. Oriented. Yeah. He collects maps. I see Lake Baikal behind you. It's what? A cool map. I see Lake Baikal behind you. It's a cool map. Yeah, it's a very cool map. I think it's pretty old, but it uh, doesn't matter. 
Yeah, well, hey. that's the geographical map, it's, and that doesn't change so much. No, that's right. Hey, let's introduce uh, you to my audience, <laughs> and and let's uh, let's. Uh, you have to picture my audience now, because most of them are probably out running, or uh, they are adventurers, climbers, ultra runners. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, outdoors people. So that's, Brilliant. Like that's us. who you're just like us, just like us. Uh, oh, that's excellent. So, uh, so yeah. So who are you? In okay, the, in so this I'm context? Andrew. You're Andrew. Andrew Tunstall. Um, Hans, <coughs> Hans's friend. I live in Spain. I'm not Spanish. I'm South African. Well, I grew up in South Africa, so I have a South African accent. So I was actually born in Scotland. But I live in Spain now, and I've been running since high school. I'm going to be 56 this year, so this adds up to a lot of years of running on and off. Um, I've done a fair amount of cycling and sailing and canoeing, and but running has always been my go-to. And I've always come back to running in between experimenting with other sports. Triathlon as well, right? Off, yeah. So, I mean, I started off on the track like most kids do if they start running at school. I was an 800-meter runner. In my late 20s, when I stopped that, I got a bicycle and I did some triathlon. Um, and I made the South African triathlon team in my 20s. And then I, oh, I messed around a bit for a few years and ran on and off. And then got serious again in my late 30s and did duathlon because I don't like swimming too much. And made the made the South African age group team to go to Worlds. And then later on in my 50s, I did it again. And I went to Worlds. I've been to World Champs the last couple of years. Not last year. Um, but a few times recently. And in between, did some canoe marathon racing, which is quite quite exciting in South Africa because it invariably also involves whitewater racing with the, with the kind of canoe that in Europe you usually just use on a lake. So you get you get you end up with a lot of broken stuff. <laughs> That's very niche canoe marathon races. Yeah, wow, it's a very South African sport. It's it's quite popular in the north of Spain, and it's relatively popular in Australia. But it's really a South African, almost a cultural thing. I think we have the right rivers for it. All right. But um, yeah, sailing sailing was fun. I sailed. I took a couple of years out, three four years out. Sold I sold my house, sold my car. Piled my wife and my mother-in-law into a boat and a seven-month-old baby, which wasn't planned, but we weren't going to change our plans once we realized we were having a baby. So of course, baby Lucy came with us and we sailed from South Africa to South America. And then we spent four years living on the boats up and down the coast of South America. It was brilliant fun, which is why we ended up in Spain. We just fell in love with that Latino culture. <laughs> And we're very happy in Spain now. You uh, you jumped pretty fast through your whole life right there, but I uh, I assume well, I assume you the, you, the ass outline, you you assume that that's where I'm heading at because you're you just wrote a a brilliant book. I haven't read it, but I'm assuming it's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> <and I'm laughs> it's brilliant. You haven't read it. That's funny. How's it going? Because uh, uh, you released it right before the Corona stuff yeah um is it selling it's, it's selling it's selling quite well in the uk it's in the top 10 ranked travel books on amazon in england and that's where we've been focusing it really 
So, yeah, and I mean, sales are, are ticking over. It's, it's not in bookshops, not that anybody's going to bookshops at the moment in any case, so probably yeah. it's in exactly the right place. And people are at home with nothing to do. Do you have it in the yeah, audio, audio well, form? The reviews, the reviews are good, so it's quite pleasing, actually. People, looks like they like it. Have you written anything before? Any, anything no. like this? Not like that, no. No. No, no it's a... I mean, at school, I don't know. I mean, writing is something that doesn't come, it's not difficult for me. I, f I find it comes quite easily. Mm. You know, I used to, I always win all the school prizes for, for creative writing. And so maybe there was something there then. But I think it depends what you're writing about. I think if you're writing, if you want to write about something that you know and that you love and there's passion in it, makes it a lot easier. You know, don't, don't ask me to write an IT manual. <laughs> What's the format? Is it, uh, did you write like, uh, um, yeah, how did you write it? How, how is it built up? Did you tell stories from your trip or uh, is it a guidebook or? No, it's not a guidebook. No, it's, a, it's, really, a, it's really the story of, of the trip from the point of view of what, motivate us, what motivated us in the first place to change our lives so drastically because obviously it is a very drastic change. We both. My wife and I both had quite good jobs. I was in banking. She was in IT. We had good salaries in the city. And we went from that to having no house, no car, just a boat, no income, sailing halfway around the world with very little experience and basically really just going where we felt like going when we felt like going there um, and exploring. It was really, it really was a lot of fun. And I think not having an itinerary left us open to a lot of experiences that we wouldn't have had if we were worried about a program or a timetable or, or, or a specific route. And we ended up in countries that we couldn't have found on a map beforehand if you'd asked us where they were, you know. Mm. And it was brilliant fun. So it's, it's the story of that. Um, but I tried to do it from, from obviously a very personal perspective. It's, it's hardly a... It, I, I tried to put some emotion into it and to build up the characters because to me the biggest treasure from that whole four-year experience was the people that we met and the relationships we developed in these strange places. And so I've tried to bring the characters through, and um, so I got a lot of I got I got I got word telling me a lot of the time that I wasn't spelling things right, but I was trying to write dialogue in the accent of the people that we'd met, you know, that, that kind of yeah, thing. And, yeah. and firsthand telling their stories that they told us. So I was trying to tell them in their language. So that was quite a, quite a rewarding exercise. And I think it has worked. People, people like it. Um, and I, and I don't take, I don't take myself seriously at all. So <laughs> I think, and I mean, with all respect to, to, to any, everybody who's listening, for example, the difference between the way the English will appreciate something like that and the way that your average American reader would react to it, I imagine would be a little bit different because the English are very good at making fun of themselves. I think English comedy is quite, is really built around that kind of idea of self-deprecation and I'm such an idiot, you won't believe what I did next. You yeah, know, and people yeah, love yeah. those stories. It's very slapstick. When you look at an American comedian, typically it's more 
they're the hero and everybody else was stupid. Mm. And look at mm. this idiot. You won't believe what this idiot did next. And of course, it's very funny, but, but there's, a, there's a fundamental difference. And it's funny because I wrote the book the English way because that's the way I, that's the way I think. And I think it's funny because I am an idiot. But if you read it and all the things I did wrong and all the decisions I made that turned out to be bad decisions and all the lucky escapes and everything else, in actual fact, if I was a complete idiot, I would have been dead now. You know, so I'm probably not a total idiot. Right. But I, but I kind of make myself out to be a bit of a fool who doesn't really know where he's going. And it makes it funnier. So we've, anyway, it's, it's, it's doing really well in the UK. It's selling in America, but we're not marketing it very strongly in America. We're marketing, doing all our marketing in the UK at the moment. Would you consider doing an audio version on Audible? I've thought about it. I've thought about it. It's a massive amount of work. Um, if I did it, I would relate it myself because I think too much would be lost in terms of the accents and the mannerisms of the, of the characters in the book. Mm. And, and the mm. way they would talk, you know, because I knew them firsthand, so I can do them. So I would, I would do it myself. So yeah, I've thought about it, but and a number of people have suggested it, and I've never really explored it. I've looked at it casually, but I haven't really explored it enough. I don't listen to ebooks, uh, to audiobooks, so I probably need to speak to people who do and get I a do. better idea. I'm your well, guy. I'm your guy. Chat and, <laughs> and understand what, because somebody said to me that audiobooks are a lot shorter than the actual book. So I said, well, that means you can't be reading it all. So what do I have to do? Edit the whole book and make a short version? Or, or is that possibly not actually true? I, I don't know. Yeah, I've thought about it, but not seriously yet. You could experiment with the format. I've heard uh, audiobooks where there, uh, there's actually more content, where they, uh, they stop in between the chapters and they do like uh, behind-the-scenes uh, commentary, kind of with the author. I would love to do that. I yeah. would love to do that. And I had thought about that and I mentioned it to somebody and they said, no, 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 you can't do that because people will listen to an audio book and they know where they got up to. And then when they get home, they try and read it online and they can't find the same place. And I thought, oh, okay, well that doesn't make sense because then the audio book can't be shorter. Again, I think they do have to be the same. Ah, just. But I think it would be quite fun to stop in between and, and fill in and explain something or add something to a story or it would be fun, you know, make people feel like you're there. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, okay, let's, we'll talk about that. Let, yeah. Let's talk about that. Hey, let's, uh, let's backtrack. Let's, let's uh, talk about uh, how we know each other. Can you, can you tell your story? Uh, <laughs> yeah. My version. Yeah. Your, your, your version. All right. I'm, exi um, I'm excited. Okay, so 2016, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, it must have been. Yeah. So I had only been in Spain for a month or two um, in Loja, a small town in Loja. Um, yeah, that's right, because we, we moved to Spain at the, at the beginning of August. Um, and about two months after we were there, there was a race. Uh, there was an 80K and a 55K version of a trail race, and I signed up for the 55K, which is way longer than anything I'd done up until then because I was always a short distance runner. And we know we we by then met a few people and we met a woman who lived in the town and she said to us, Oh please, she's got this Norwegian guy coming. She's running a little um Airbnb thing and she's got this new Norwegian guy coming and, and he can't speak Spanish and do we mind 
you know, coming to meet him and just making sure, you know, that he's okay. And if she needs to explain anything, we said, no, of course, that's absolutely fine. And we, we went around and discovered that you were there because you were doing the race. Um, although you were doing the 80 K, so yeah. we were not going to be racing each other. Um, which was, which was pretty cool because we got on so well. And I think we, we went for one or two little training runs. Yeah. Short yeah. Training runs I think before, I was there two days before or something. Yeah. 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 And then on race day, the first maybe 30 Ks was, was the same. And then yours, yours kept going further up into the mountains and mine went round in a loop. Hmm. And we were together on and off for most of those 30 Ks. And we last saw each other maybe five minutes before the two routes split out. Um, which makes you a much better runner than me because you were going twice as far at <laughs> 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 the same speed. Um, and it was all looking like you were, you were going to win that race. So when, when I got back to the, back to the venue and, and in third place for the 55 K and I was able to tell Abby and, and your landlady that you were out there and you had a lead and you were probably going to win. Everybody was really excited until eventually somebody else won. And then somebody else came in and then somebody else came in and then nobody knew where Hans was. <laughs> mm. And the organizers were getting panicky and it turned into a complete disaster because you had unfortunately missed a checkpoint. And how much extra did you run? 10, 20 Ks or something? I mean, I didn't run. You, you take over this bit because. I didn't run that much far, further. I just took a wrong turn at, in one of the towns. I don't know the, the name of it. Do you know? No. Uh, and yeah, it was supposed to be an aid station there and I followed some uh, course markings from a, from a, a race that was held uh, the weekend before so yeah uh, so I missed the aid station and uh, I missed my drop bag I missed uh, all my my <laughs> nutrition you know and yeah. I had about 40 k's left or something and uh yeah so it's not the just it's not the couple of extra k's it's it's missing all the nutrition in the liquid i missed all my yeah for the almost the second half of the race and by that time i've okay. been running for 10 15 k's without anything so i was uh by then i was uh, i was dehydrated and i had to run to the next aid station to get the next stuff and uh, by that time i was severely dehydrated and i didn't recognize it and um <laughs> Yeah, you know, when you get dehydrated, you take the wrong decisions as well. You, of course you do. You, you get to yeah. the aid station and you're like, uh, I remember just um, taking a banana and sipping on some Coke and not bringing any water with me. It's like taking stupid decisions. And well, if you think about what happens to a muscle when it gets dehydrated and it doesn't function properly and it goes into cramp, your brain is a... Your brain is just another organ. Yeah, right. It needs fueling. It needs liquid. It doesn't work. Yeah. So eventually, you know, I, I get to the finish line. I think I was second or third. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I uh, I got over the finish line. I think you were second. I think I was second, yeah. You were second. Yeah. And so I was pretty happy about that. I didn't actually know that I missed the station. I just thought they screwed up. Because, because <laughs> well, in my, in my mind, I'd been following the course markings all the uh, all the way, yeah. uh, and I I just figured because uh, they they told me that there were, I was gonna get my drop bag at fifty k, and I didn't. Uh, 
and I, I got over the finish line and I just like collapsed pretty much. Yeah. And I couldn't get up and I was starting to shake. I was super cold. I couldn't get up and uh, they were starting to get a little bit worried that they put me on like a, a room uh, in a locker room behind the inside the, um, I don't know, some kind of office. And, yeah, by, uh, the, by the swimming pool. <laughs> yeah. And I just lay there and uh, tried to get some uh, water, water and electrolytes, but uh, nothing stayed in my stomach. And um, I tried to get up and then I fainted a couple of times. And that, then that's when they uh, called the, the ambulance. Mm. And uh, they drove me to the hospital. Fortunately, hosp- the hospital was next door. <laughs> it was next door, 50 meters. <laughs> <laughs> and so they... Um, yeah, they uh, diagnosed me with uh, rhabdomyolysis and uh, severe dehydration. And so that's Terrible. that's what happens when you run in uh, super hot Andalusia. And you were in you were in hospital for several days, eh? Yeah, a couple of days. Mm. Yeah. So that was a brutal um, learning curve. Yeah. Stay hydrated, kids. Yeah, it sneaks up on you, eh? Yeah. I, I'm still learning that. I still make mistakes, even in 40k trail races. Uh, I'm just, and I think it's got to do with my background of bloody 800 meter running. There are not too many aid stations in an 800 meter race, <laughs> um, and I just do not eat enough. I mean, I'm getting better at drinking, but you know, I'll bite something and then throw it down. And it doesn't help waiting until you're thirsty or hungry because that's too late. That's too late. You are going to get hungry and you are going to get thirsty. Don't wait for it, though. You've got to start early. And then, you know, if you're going to stop for 30 seconds or 45 seconds to swallow something, then stop for 45 seconds. Those 45 seconds are going to save you more time in the long run. It's a good point. It's a good point. And it's going to be, uh, yeah, you're not going to end up in the hospital. And yeah, damaging that's your kidneys. That's, that's always good. Yeah, that's I'm gonna serve, serve myself some uh, some uh, decaf uh, coffee here because it's uh, it's pretty late. Uh, that's my new favorite thing to drink right now. It's a decaf coffee. I'm in I'm in Plymouth at the moment in the UK, um, and I just had a really nice local beer. Yeah, next door neighbor. I'm, I'm staying at my mother-in-law's. Um, unfortunately I was caught out by the coronavirus and I wasn't, wasn't at home and now I can't get home. Um, but I'm in England with my mother-in-law's house and I've got my mother here too. And, um, I, I was talking to the next door neighbor the other day. He's, he's in the Navy in the UK. He works on submarines. And so we were talking about the sea. I told him that I'd done some sailing and he was very interested. So I ordered a copy of my book and gave it to him. So he came around here with a whole lot of local beers which was very nice i'll just head with that very nice nice. i'm drinking a sort of artisanal plymouth beer you can have your decaf i'm having my beer (laughs) (laughs) i wish i had some beer uh (laughs) this is pretty cool because uh one of one of my uh, my missions with this podcast is to kind of connect different kind of uh running communities and and um and document the different running cultures over the world Brilliant. So, you know, I've been to Japan, I've been to South America, uh, I've been to the US, 
Spain, all, I, I documented all my my races. You know, talk to talk yeah. to different kinds of runners. You're South African. You live in Spain. Um, when uh, when did you leave South Africa? Uh, you mean to to go to Spain? Yeah, or just like uh, f- f- uh, when you went out for your uh, the big sailing adventure. When was this? Oh, for that. Yeah. Because we, we did go back. We oh, you went back. back after that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, we okay. went back. So that was in 2008. And in 2012, I was back in Cape Town with a new job and worked there for another four years until 2016. And then we left again and went to Spain. Okay. And now we've been in Spain for four years. How was that to get um, back to normal, uh, normal uh, work? after being out sailing for for that long and yeah it was it was quite interesting um i was i was in finance and i had worked at a bank before and a lot of my well my the the part of the bank that i was in meant that all my clients were companies they were all financial companies asset managers and insurance companies investment companies and one of them was very keen for me to go and work with them and, and in their marketing department. So they kind of had been throwing the bait in the water for a few years while, I, while we were in South America and I wasn't really that interested until we had a second child. Our second child was born in Uruguay. Um, and my wife drew the line on, under that. She said, right, that's it. Two kids. I'm not living on a boat anymore. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't, thought, uh, well, she didn't give birth on the boat. Did she? Not on, uh, no, <laughs> no. We actually, we actually found a really nice place in Uruguay. Um, <clears throat> we met some Urugu- a Uruguayan family who also had a boat, and they said they, we, they would help us find a house, and they found us a fantastic little house in a little village quite near the River Plate. So we were able to moor our boat in a, in a, in a little local harbour, and it was really not far at all to the village. And we rented this house in the village, quite a big village, 5,000 people. And the older child, Lucy, who was then three or something, went to the local kindergarten and we rented the house and we stayed there for a year. And I started, I did quite a lot of running and I did a lot of mountain biking actually. I got a bicycle and joined the local club, the running club and the cycling club. And I just spent my time running and cycling. So I did quite a lot of racing in Uruguay in that year. But then after we had the baby, it was like, okay, we're not getting back on the boat. So we sold the boat to a Uruguayan in Punta del Este, went back to South Africa and worked for another four years to save up some more money because we had actually spent quite a lot, as you can imagine. Um, But now we have our own business and it's an online business that my wife started while I was working in South Africa this last time. Um, And that earns enough now that I was able to stop working. So we live in Spain because now with an online business, we can live anywhere. We just need Wi-Fi. Right. So we've been lucky and we've been able to find a beautiful little village just outside Loja, which is the town where we met you. Um, It's a gorgeous little place. It has a a stream running through it that comes from under the mountains. So it runs all year round. It's not affected by the dry season. The water is crystal clear. It's nice and cold. It's pure. There are trout farms and sturgeon farms all along the river. Rio Frio, right? It's the only place. It's the Rio Frio. See, 
real for real. It's the only place outside of Lake Baikal, which is why I noticed the lake on the map behind your head. Okay. It's the only place other than that actual lake where you can get that particular type of caviar from that particular species of sturgeon. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And the Russians have been very possessive about it for centuries. And it's this it's the caviar that only the Tsar and his family were allowed to eat back in the day. It was reserved for the Russian royalty. Wow. Um, and some enterprising Spaniards managed to steal some eggs about a hundred years ago and get them out and get them to Rio Frio. And now you can you can order the caviar. They they breed the they breed the sturgeon right there in the village. It's it expensive? really interesting. It's bloody expensive. How expensive? It's very expensive. Well, you can get a little jar, a little tin of caviar that sort of, you could put six of them in one hand. I mean, it, I'm talking about a really small, I'm trying to think of something that would be that small. It's a tiny little jar. And you pay something like 300 euro. All right. I mean, it's crazy. But they exported most of it to Japan and to Saudi Arabia. You know, there'd be enough people there with enough money who just want to brag about where they got it from. So, so, so you, but, you, um, you came the to... The fish is really nice. And of course, the thing with caviar is when you, is when you harvest the caviar out of a fish, you actually have to kill the fish. Mm, I didn't know that. So these fish grow for 15 to 18 years. Um, so they have to keep them and look after them and feed them for 15 years before they're mature enough. And then they take them out and cut them open and they will get something like 20 kilograms of caviar out of one fish. Absolutely huge, huge, huge amount of, of caviar. And then they give the fish to the, to the local restaurants in Rio Frio. And so you can eat the steaks or get, or get smoked sturgeon, which is <laughs> quite a novelty. That's not too expensive, but the caviar itself costs a lot. Yeah, sure. Hey, tell me about um, tell me about uh, Loja and uh, Rio Frio and uh, the running culture you have there because it's it seems pretty unique. It's a very tight it tight community, right? It's a very it is it's it's quite different from what I'm used to mm. um, as a South African. Um, and I would I would say cycling cycling and running both. Um, I'm reasonably competitive, especially in my age group in South Africa. Um, would go to trail race and if I was fit I would kind of assume that I'm going to win and if I wasn't fit then I would assume that I would at least get on the podium it doesn't work <laughs> doesn't work like that in Spain <laughs> even when I'm really fit I have to go really hard just to come third in my age group it's really hard and they seem to love and I, I don't know what if I, I suspect maybe where you are in Norway it's the same but everything is very very steep up or very very steep down Okay. Um, and I'm quite heavily built, and I like I like flat. I mean, I'm an 800 meter runner, you know, but but road running is just too boring for me, and and I don't like the pounding on the tarmac. So I like the trails, but the trails are not gentle in Spain. Mm. They're not gentle. They're hard and they're rugged. But the people love it, and I think the more the more they scramble, the more they think they've had fun. I've been to races that have had sections where you can run quite fast, and I enjoy myself. And the blokes are complaining afterwards and saying that it was a horrible run. It was a horrible run. I say, what was wrong with it? They say there was too much running. <laughs> so it makes me laugh. It's supposed to be a running race. But they are fanatical. I mean, the, the town of Loja has 20,000 people. 
there are two running clubs, two cycling clubs, and a triathlon club in a 20,000 people sized town. Oh, that's more than Oslo, which has. So that yeah. tells you what the culture is like. Mm. And it's a fantastic community. And I don't think that's just a running thing. I mean, the community generally is is absolutely beautiful. The people are so open. You've been there. You've seen it. You know, they're so warm and embracing and they want to know you and they want to include you in everything. And I mean, we're just very, very happy there. They've, they've taken us on, taken us into their hearts. It's fantastic. Our kids are in the local school. I think that also helps. It shows some sort of commitment on our part, I suppose, mm, mm. to integrate into the culture. How did you pick that just, place? What made you choose uh, Loja and uh, Rio Frio? Um, we'd never heard of it, which is hardly surprising because I don't think anyone has, but my father-in-law who was a vet and working in the UK, he and his Danish wife had bought 10 years previously, a little, a little house in a town, in a small town, somewhere in the South of Spain. And they had this idea that they would retire to it one day. So when we got back from South America and started working again in South Africa and we had been planning actually to go back to Argentina because we wanted to go back to South America. Mm. And after a while, Abby said, look, she's not sure she wants to go to South America. It's a bit far from everything. I said, well, South Africa is far from everything. It depends what you mean, far from what? So, well, she's got a lot of family. We both have a lot of family in the UK. And I said, well, I'm not going there. Just rain all the time, um, and we thought, well, rural Spain is probably quite similar to Argentina and Uruguay. The culture will be the same. The climate is good. You know, let's let's look at the south of Spain. And then she said, oh, of course, my dad has a little place there. You know, and he says that when we first move to Spain, we can go straight there, move into his house, stay there for a while until we've decided where we want to go. So we thought, well, that's great. And then we'll put our bags in his little house in Loja and we'll give ourselves three months to travel around the whole of Spain yeah. and find the ideal place. And we managed to get six kilometers before we found the ideal place. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we are. That's awesome. Yeah. It's worked out brilliantly. <laughs> I, I've been, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, a lot the last uh, couple of years. It's, it's like, where's the the most ideal place on planet earth to live if you want to become a good uh, mountain ultra trail runner and you know i've been traveling traveling a lot and yeah i found some good places i mean there are lots of good places if you want to of course if you want to train in the mountains but uh if you want to if you want to have fun and uh get the most out of the place you cannot be alone you have no. to be there with with someone like your f- friends or or you know wife and kids or um so i, I guess uh, the community aspect is pretty important in loja yes it is that's that's yeah. why you settled or is it the combination of having your father-in-law and well that, that was instrumental in getting us to go there in the first place because that was the only place we knew that we could find a bed to begin mm. with mm. because it was in his house and of course it means a lot to have him so close because we see him a lot you know, he spends weekends, most weekends he comes to our house. And if we want to go and do, if Abby and I want to go out, he, he'll babysit. You know, so, so that's nice. But we have, and we were learn. we'd already learned quite a bit of Spanish when we were in South America. So 
we were already sort of speaking Spanish-ish. Yeah. And yeah. now that we've been there four years, it's a lot better and we, we can communicate quite well. So we have very strong connections within that community. And to be quite honest, I have friends there that it feels like I've had these friends with them since I was a kid. That's how they mm. make you feel. Mm. And you know you can trust them and then you know they'll look out for you. And it, I mean, it's, it's been quite phenomenal, actually, the things people have done to help us and to look after us and to make sure everything's okay. It's just the most amazing thing. And you know what the Spanish are like, anything for a fiesta. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. the parties and the, and the fun, the fun aspect of it is just, I mean, you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. after the, uh, about this uh, stone after race, that race, amazing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's off the clock, you know. Yeah. Um, of course, you came back to do the stone race, didn't you? Yeah, right. You I've been there back. three you times. You came back and did mm. the stone race. Well, mm. The stone race was the was doubled last last year as the Andalusia Trail Championships. So it's really, really, it's really getting on the map. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And you did well. You again came second by second. about sixty seconds. Yeah, yeah. behind uh, Zaid uh, Ait Malik. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What a race that was. Yeah, Man. It was a cool race. <laughs> That was a that was a good race. Yeah. Okay, so so let's let's compare the different uh, running cultures. Uh, South yeah. Africa has uh, a long tradition, right? Yes. You have uh, yeah. obviously the the Comrades Marathon, very, uh, very which big. is the oldest ultra marathon in the history. To be quite honest, I think it's a bit absurd. I mean, I have a lot of respect for people who do it because it's not an easy thing to run 90 kilometers on tar, tarmac. Um, you've got, you've gone again. Yeah, oh, there, sure. there you are. Okay. Um, it's a road run, you know. It's a 90 kilometer road run, but it's become such a such a part of the running culture that South Africans are quite um, wrapped up in. If you want to be a runner, it's because you want to run the Comrades Marathon. Oh, really? Where I mean, you get a lot of English people, for example, say, "Oh, you know, it would be my ambition to run the London Marathon one day." Well, that's that's forty-two k's. We're talking ninety, mm. and you have maybe twenty thousand people running ninety k road run every year, which is not. It's not normal. <laughs> you just don't see that kind of thing anywhere else. So I think, unfortunately, what it does is it detracts, it takes a lot of people away maybe from the shorter stuff where they might actually be better suited. Okay. They might be better at it. Okay. Um, which I think we lose a lot of talent. I think, honestly, I think South Africans lose a lot of talent to the Comrades Marathon. Mm. There's a lot of really fast runners who show a lot of promise end up doing that because they're incentivized to do it and it destroys them and their career is then quite short and maybe they could have gone on to being a really good Olympic marathoner or something, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's very much a culture of how long, how long did you run? You know, nobody cares how fast your 10K is or your half marathon. They want to know if you've run the Comrades. If you haven't run the Comrades, uh, well, then you're not a serious runner. No, you could. It, it's a different thing. It's it's quite strange. Trail running is quite new in South Africa, and it's quite niche. 
Um, it's expensive. It's very much a middle class thing. What's the expensive part? Uh, why is it expensive? Because they invariably involve traveling and accommodation in hotels somewhere that isn't easy for your average African to get to. Yeah, okay. So being Africa, I mean, you know what the Kenyan runners are like. In a, in a town with a 10K or a half marathon, then you have really big fields and a lot of black, a lot of African runners and they're all really bloody fast. And then you go out of town where you have to spend two nights at a hotel somewhere and everybody's white and everybody's most and middle class and got the money and some are quite good runners because they fit, you know, but mm -hmm. the standard isn't anywhere near what the standard is that you would see in a marathon. Um, whereas I think in Europe, it's it's very competitive and they are the standard is really really high which is why i was saying that i would go to a trail race in south africa and even even when i was 50 i would know that i'm going to be at least in the top five overall mm. and, and sometimes i would win whereas now in spain <laughs> it's just hilarious i'm lucky if i can even get on the podium for my age group you know i get destroyed and that's it's just it's just very different mm. You, well, you have some pretty good uh, runners in South Africa, though. Ryan Sands, of course we for example. Yes. Uh, yes. When did uh, when did trail races and, and ultra trail races um, start being a thing in in South Af South Africa? There were a couple. I think when I first moved from Johannesburg to Cape Town, that would that was two thousand and three. I met a guy, became friends with a guy there who had, who was, who did quite a lot of running. Um, and he had organized a trail race around the mountains of Cape Town. Uh, it was a 40, 40 something Ks race, not mm. massively long, but quite hard. And, and he'd won it himself the first, the first couple of editions. But I mean, you had a field of maybe 40. Um, and it was just really starting then. <clears throat> and I think it caught the public imagination when Ryan Sands came on the scene mm. because Ryan Sands ran internationally and he's really talented and he did really well. And all of a sudden the sport was getting into the press. It wasn't getting any coverage before. And once that started, I think a lot of people thought, wow, that looks like fun. And it's absolutely exploded now, but it's still it's still predominantly a middle-class sport because there isn't the same kind of money in it, prize mm. money in it that, mm. that, the, that the road running has. Although I think the sponsors are starting to come in now, so there's more of a more opportunity. Um, but Ryan, I would say, was responsible for really making it take off. When did, he, when did he start? When did he start winning races? Oh, this, I can tell you a really funny story about Ryan because I was. I was living in a little little town just outside Cape Town called Halt Bay. And there's a running club in Halt Bay. And I was the chairman of the running club. And I was also quite full of myself because at the time I was the fastest, the fastest runner in the club. And I went to do a half marathon somewhere. And I noticed a guy sitting <clears throat> in the crowd before prize giving wearing the same colors as me. And I didn't know him. So I thought, oh, we've got a new a new guy in the club. Let me go and say hello. And it was Ryan. 
sands. So we met and we had the beer and I thought, okay, well, you know, and, and I, I can't, I think I'd finished like 60 seconds in front of him or something. So we were about the same level <laughs> at that point. Yeah. And um, I said, have you been running for a long time? He said, no, about, about four months. I said, wow, okay, well, that, that, was, that wasn't a bad half marathon for four months. Well, he only started running because he's got a lot of friends at university who run and he doesn't run. He just drinks, drinks beer and fucks around. And he was saying to them, <laughs> oh, marathon is easy. Looks easy. I'm sure if I wanted to run a marathon, I could run a marathon. And they said, no, you can't. And so he went off with them for a weekend to a place called Neisner and they had a marathon and he went and ran the marathon. And he did a three-hour 10 or something with no training um, and beat all his friends. And he thought, this is quite, quite like this. So he'd come along and then done this half marathon. So we ran together a few times. And within about a month, he said, no, that's it. He's, he's right. He doesn't actually care. He's not enjoying it that much. It's boring. He's run his marathon. He's, he's going to give up running. Mm. I, said, I said, but have you run in the mountains yet? He said, no. I said, well, come with me. Come with me next weekend and I'll show you I'll show you a different way of running and a different side to running and you tell me what you think. So we met up on a on a little pass called Constantia Neck. I remember exactly where I remember it in so much detail. And we went and we must have run maybe 20 Ks, not not too much, over the mountains and down into back down to the beach. And I've never seen a smile so big on a guy's face. <laughs> At the end of a run, I said, if you smile anymore, you're going to cut your head in half. You've got to control yourself. <laughs> he says, I'm never giving up running. He says, that's what I want to do. So I said, well, that's great because I'm training for a big trail race. So we started training together and we must have trained. We were training partners for, for a little while. Um, and then one day he said to me, he said, I've done a stupid thing. I said, what's that? He says, I've entered a, a massive race in the Gobi Desert five-day Gobi Desert race. He says, but I, I said, what are you talking about? When is that? He said, oh, I don't know, in, in four months' time. So I said, tell me about this. He says, you, you have to run 40, 40, 40, 80, and 20 or something, five days, a marathon every day with a, half, with a double marathon on the fourth day. I said, are you mad? He said, yeah, I think so. He said, I'm going to ask the organizers if they will if they will postpone my entry and hold my money over for the following year, because, you know, I think I need to train more. He said, but I've booked all my plane tickets and I don't know what to do. So I said, well, why don't you just go? Cause you've, it's all paid for. Enjoy the experience, take it easy, learn, see what it's like. And then you can do it seriously next year. If you, if you think you like it. Yeah. Now that's what he's going to do. I said, but be careful. Let's just take it easy. It's a very, very long way. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, of course, we were all watching him on the internet, following his, his progress on the tracker, and he went out on day one <laughs> and won by about five minutes. He won the first stage by about five minutes. And, and the press got the hold of that quite quickly and said, oh, South African, South African runner in, in the Gobi is leading after the first day. He's got a five-minute lead. And we were all sitting at home holding our hat heads in our hands going, oh, no, Ryan, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I remember sending him SMSs. There was no WhatsApp then. I remember sending him SMS going, Ryan, you know, you've still got four more days. He says, no, no, no. He says, it's fine. He says, I'm taking it easy. I thought, no, it doesn't look like it to me. 
And the next day he won again by about 10 minutes. And the next day he won by 20 minutes and he ended up winning every single stage and he won the whole race by an hour and a half or something. And he hasn't looked back and that's, that's what he does. And he ran 160 Ks around his garden on coronavirus lockdown last week. Yeah, I, I saw that. That's pretty, He's nuts. that's insane. So, I mean, it's just been absolutely brilliant for him. That's insane. And I certainly can't beat him now for the records. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he's a lovely guy. He's a wonderful guy. He really is. And his book, he wrote, he's got a, a good book out called Trailblazer. If any of your listeners are interested in, in, in Ryan's progress and how he got into it and all his adventures. I mean, he's won all the, all the five day desert races around the world. And he's won the Western States and, I mean, he's certainly got a good palmaris. And his, his, his book is called Trailblazer. And you probably get it on Amazon. You can certainly get it in the bookshops. I think that book came out before he did the uh, Great Himalayan Trail, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've yes. been, I, I went to Nepal last year. And uh, when I like, realized how massive that project was, I was like, holy shit. I don't understand how it's, how it's possible to run across I, Nepal. I, I, like that. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I went to Nepal in the early 90s, not, not as a runner. I, went, I just went to do some hiking and I spent, I don't know, five or six weeks in the mountains. Where did you go? Um, I, went, I went from Kathmandu to a place called Jiri and then I walked from there. Oh, you, you took the Jiri Trail? Yeah, I took the Jiri Trail. I walked past Lukla, went to Namchi Bazaar, went to Everest Base Camp, Gokyo Lakes. And nice. back out again, back But it's it's very difficult, and and again, maybe because you live in in Norway and you've got proper mountains. But for me to go there and the scale of those mountains is 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 just so unlike anything else you can imagine. Uh, you can't compare it to anything in Norway either. That you 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 get into a valley and you think right, it's nine o'clock in the morning. I have to get to the end of this valley and that's where I'm sleeping tonight. Oh, well, that doesn't look very far. And you start walking, you know, and, and five hours later, you don't look like you're any closer. And this valley it's is ridiculous. so big and so long and so wide. And the mountains are so huge that they look like the normal sized mountains that are close because they are so big. Yeah, it's insane. And they're not close. They're not close at all. They are a very long way. It's, it's really, it's, it's very humbling. You know that but you ra- you were running. Yeah, I did the uh, the Everest the trail race, which uh, originally was uh, a race on the Jiri Trail. Uh, I think uh, a couple of years or uh, last year they changed uh, the course, but uh, uh, the years prior they started in Jiri. Okay, and uh, is it was it up and back or was it one way? No, one way, but it's it's a multi day. So I, I think we raced for five or six days and. Uh, we ended up, uh, well, we passed Lukla, went up to uh, Tengboche and back to Lukla. So you went up through Namchi Bazaar to Tengboche? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we did not go to Everest base camp in the race. But you know, um, what's her name? Lizzie Hawker. You know her? Yeah. Yeah. She has. I, I know the, who she is. I yeah, yeah. Her. She's been uh, to Nepal a lot. You know, she, she knows the area. She's, she's the one that had... Uh, uh, I don't know the the details, but she had the the record before Ryan Sands uh, on the Himalayan Trail. 
but yeah. they did different trails so it's a, it's a that's a different discussion but uh she has the the, the record from every space camp to Kathmandu and she ran the Jiri trail to Kathmandu yeah it's 199 but how did she run from Jiri to Kathmandu on the road I think so yeah because that's the that's the path that uh I think I think they had to walk from Kathmandu to every space camp all all the way uh when they wanted to summit Everest back in the day yes yes the road to Jiri was relatively new when I went and that was 1992 yeah right yeah so and the, the whole trail is about uh from Jiri it's like uh I don't know 200 250k or something it's about 200k to base camp from Jiri yeah okay okay yeah well anyways and from Kathmandu to Jiri is probably 100 150k if I'm remembering right I mean it's a long time ago now yeah well traveling it's a different uh different subject or uh I don't know what do you think traveling is going to be uh, like after the uh the covid situation <laughs> oh Hans a week is a long time in the current world that we live in yeah you right know? um I don't think I don't think the world is going to change as much as a lot of people are saying. Um, I think there are a lot of things that I hope are going to change, and I hope we're going to learn some lessons, but I'm a little bit cynical that humans I don't think humans are very good at learning anything. Um, I think we could take some important lessons from this about the environment, for example. I mean, you see how the environment, the natural environment, seems to be responding to the lack of human activity. It seems to be bouncing back. Um, but that might be sending the wrong message because that might be sending the message that it doesn't matter what we do because it can bounce back in six weeks. Mm. Um, mm. I don't know if it's going to change people's behavior. Maybe short term, people will appreciate things and appreciate their freedom, appreciate their relationships, realize what's really important is the people you love a lot more than what kind of car you have, whether that's going to last. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see about that. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. What do you, I mean, this you... is not exactly a, a fun time for anybody. So if anything good can come out of it, that would be great. But I don't think that makes it doesn't make any of it a good thing. You know, as just on the official virus death count went past, a quarter of a million today and those are the people that have died that we know about mm. i mean that's a lot of people that would have been alive today that were alive a month ago and now they're gone you know and, and for every person who dies there are a lot of people who are grieving so there's several million people right there that are quite distraught at the moment so i think we need to i, I don't know yeah you, ha you have been pretty active uh, on commenting this uh this thing on facebook like uh, not not every day but uh throughout the whole process you've been commenting uh is there anything you've noticed uh, did you have any um predictions oh, well, that were wrong or uh, I, I don't or wanna, right? i don't want to st step out of my area of expertise here it's very easy for all of us to be a keyboard warrior whenever we want to yeah right yeah um and i'm not an epidemiologist and I'm not a virologist, but I am a biologist and I went to university and studied 
zoology and chemistry and biochemistry and microbiology and I was a science teacher high school science teacher so I have a, a grounding at least in a lot of the science behind this stuff and what bothers me the most is the amount of utter nonsense you read on social media but then again should we expect anything different but some of the utter utter garbage that is that is produced and promoted and shared by people who are understandably afraid um, and pushed where you would believe it or you would be prepared to believe it if you didn't know any better because, you know, and because I know a, a bit and I've got a, a science grounding, I can see very, very quickly that a lot of it is complete and utter nonsense. And yet people are, sharing it and promoting it and swearing by it and taking almost political positions on this you know what it's a virus it's not a it's not a policy it's a virus it's not a it's not a political <laughs> position it isn't something for a left wing view and a right wing view it's a fucking virus it's just biology and I think we, we need to calm down. It's a great point. I think we need to calm down and I'm swearing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think we just need to get over ourselves and wait. And that there's a lot we don't know. That I I do believe that mistakes are being made because that's that's normal. I don't believe the conspiracy theories because I haven't seen any compelling evidence. And I quite honestly I don't think human beings are clever enough for that kind of global conspiracy because I don't think we can organize much without arguing so to do pull off something like that and that level of conspiracy and have so many people in on it and you know secretly vaccinating everybody with a chip on behalf of Bill Gates and all that kind of stuff I mean, that's just I'm sorry but I mean I think that's just idiotic you've got to get every nurse and every doctor in every country in the world in on the conspiracy to put the secret chip in the needle to give you the vaccination now, I don't know how you're going to get that right yeah, I heard something about five five G or something. You know, the new no, and then there's that. Mm. I mean, you know, and people will argue about that kind of thing, but they don't know what a microwave is. So they're going on about the microwaves, and they don't know what a microwave is because they don't know anything about physics. Mm. They'll argue about the virus, and they can't tell you the difference between a virus and a bacteria. So if you don't know, just shut up. And wait, the experts know, the scientists know, you know, and the ones who are wrong, we'll find out which ones were wrong and which ones were right. And I think they're all doing their best, trying to find the right therapy. Do you lock people down? Do you not lock people down? Well, you're faced with that decision in advance. It's very easy afterwards to go, oh, we should have been locked down or we shouldn't have been locked down or the lockdown should have been done in another way. And that's easy afterwards. But what do you do? What do you do? You're running a country and you see this virus and you see tens of thousands of people dying and you know it's coming to your country next. And your people look at you and go, what are you going to do? So you can do nothing and say, this is nonsense. Don't worry about it. Or you can say, we're going to social distance. We're going to have some lockdowns. We're going to take some pain and we're going to try and prevent it from swamping our hospitals. Now the virus comes and you've done nothing, and people will start dying. Now it's your fault, because you did nothing. If, on the other hand, you do lock down, and the virus comes, 
and very few people die. People don't turn around and say, well done for locking us down. Hardly anybody died. You did a great job. What they do is they say, why did you lock us down? Nobody died. That was a, it was stupid. It was a hoax. So, so, you're, so you're stuffed. So you're stuffed. Yeah. Whatever you do. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's leave that topic. Um, yes, it's, okay. it's funny. I, I'm, I'm, I've been listening to podcasts like uh, that. That's just two days old, and uh, they talk about the virus, and it's already old news. Things have changed, right? Uh, yeah. Things are changing almost every day because yeah. we're learning new things. Everything's outdated all the time. If you push, if you push me for what I think, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say I think this virus is ahead of us. And I think a lot of us have already had it. Mm. And I think by the time they get a proper vaccine, a proper tested, proven vaccine, which will be a great thing to have, I think 40, 50, 60% of us will already be immune because we've already had it. Mm. Because as they're rolling out testing, see, testing was only in the hospitals, only for people who were sick. Now they've got there's more capacity in a lot of countries and there's more... Um, testing going on of people who aren't necessarily sick. And it's amazing how many people are coming back with a positive test and they're asymptomatic. Mm. And it looks in the UK, for example, right now, that anything between 5 and 10% of the entire population is sick right now. When I say sick, I mean infected. I might be sick. I'm certainly not in, mm. I'm, I'm infected. I mean, I'm not sick, sick. So... If between 5 and 10% of all the people they're testing now comes back positive, how many more of them were sick last month or last week and are better now? So they're getting a negative test, but if you tested them two weeks ago, they would have also been positive. So it's more than 10%. So you've got this enormous number. Now you're running into millions of people who either have it right now or have had it in the last month and didn't even know. Which is not to say that it's not a dangerous virus. It very clearly is. The wrong person gets it. It's lethal. Mm. And the problem is it's so contagious, it spread so quickly that they had too many hospital cases at the same time and couldn't cope. So people were dying unnecessarily because there weren't enough beds, weren't enough ventilators, weren't enough nurses, weren't enough doctors. So the shutdown was to slow it down. They talk about flattening the curve to allow the hospitals to cope. But I don't think, I think the virus in the meantime is so ahead of us. I mean, I think, I think, I do think there's going to be a herd immunity sometime in the next six months and there will be sporadic outbreaks, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's, we're going to be living under, under the threat of doom. You think we've seen the worst? I think I've had it. I think my mother's had it. I think my mother-in-law's had it. We've been on lockdown here in Plymouth. And we were all sick, and I was, oh, it felt like a cold to me. But the two grannies were very sick. I thought my mother was going to die. She was really, really ill. Mm. Um, but they pulled through, and they still have a, a residual cough. Now, maybe, maybe we all just got flu, coincidentally. Who knows? <laughs> but when you look at the testing and you see how many people do have the virus, it's perfectly feasible that, that we had it. And this is uh, it's an interesting uh, experiment with uh, our mindsets. You know, obviously, you you took uh, some uh, decisions uh, earlier in life with uh, quitting your job, getting a boat, sailing around the world. You know, that mm. kind of, kind of the same thing as I did last year, 
quit my job yeah, yeah. Like, when traveling. Yeah. Uh, it, this whole virus is putting things in, in perspective. Um, do you think, uh, you know, when you tell your story story to, to other people, hey, are you here? Oh, I don't know what happened there. Hang on a minute. I think you just turned off your, your camera. There you no, are. Yeah, I'm back. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. So uh, when you tell your story, uh, oh, we have visitors. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm uh, living at a friend's place. That's all right. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, let's see where this uh, goes. Uh, yeah. When you tell, tell your story to strangers, how Which do, one? <laughs> how, I don't know. How do they react? Are they, oh, uh, you mean about about quitting and changing my life? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. You get funny reactions. You get you get a mixture of reactions, and it depends on the people. A lot of people say things like, and and you probably get this too. And they say to you, "Oh, wow, that's fantastic! You're so lucky." Yeah, yeah. Now, luck has nothing to do with it. You took decisions about your life. And you implemented those decisions, and you have the life you have now because you chose it, not because you're lucky. You decided what you wanted, mm. and it, it it sounds like a a simple corny thing, but it's actually quite profound. And I call it desired outcome. And if you look at any situation you're in that you don't like, so you you could be worried about something or you could be bored with something or you could and it could be something as mundane as a very difficult difficult meeting that you're going to have tomorrow and maybe lose a client and you've done something wrong and you don't know what to say and you wish it hadn't happened and you know you want to climb into a hole or it could mean that you hate your whole lifestyle and you want to change your life but <coughs> you don't know what to do you've got to tackle the problem or the situation not from where you currently are you've got to Approach the thing from where you want it to finish. So you decide what the desired outcome is. How would I like this to finish? Where do I want this to resolve or end up? Where do I position do I want to be at the end? And you put yourself in your mind in that position and you look back towards where you are now. And the route to get from where you are to where you want to be becomes actually quite clear. It, it, it's absolutely quite amazing and it really does work and if you if you hate your job you don't sit around going oh i hate my job i wish i could get out of this job i wish i could get out of this job you're thinking from the wrong place you've got to decide and, and this is maybe not an easy or a quick thing you say no what do i want to do what job do i want do i want a job what, what lifestyle do i want where do i want to be how do i want to be living work that out and then go right now i know what i do want how do I get here? And you look, you, you, you track the path backwards and it falls into place and becomes very, 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 very apparent. And, nope. you, and, and you take com complete control of your life like that. Desired outcome. And then people tell you you're lucky and you're not lucky. Yeah. You knew what you wanted. Did you picture yourself uh, in, in a house in Loja or on, on a sailing boat in, uh, in uh, Uruguay? Initially... Initially, we uh, we had we were in Johannesburg and we were both in corporate jobs and there was lots of traffic and lots of crime and lots of stress and we thought no we don't need this this is terrible we, we want to do something else and you know people a lot of people get frustrated and bored and don't like 
that aspect of their lives and they they wish it was different but they don't know what to do so we went away to the mountains for a weekend and said let's try and clear our minds and let's forget about all the things about our current lifestyle that we don't like let's decide what would we do if there was no constraint so forget about what's practical or what's possible or what seems reasonable let's just open our minds up completely and we both independently came to the idea that imagine living on a boat sailing around the world that would be cool and it does it sounds fantastic and we thought wow you know <laughs> and then we said well okay but that's a bit crazy because you can't just do that you know who does that so we thought well i mean some people do it so why are we not doing it well that was easy to answer we don't have the money we don't have the experience we don't have a boat we live 600 kilometers from the from the sea there were lots of reasons why it wasn't practical for us to be sailing around the world on a boat mm. so we wrote those reasons down on a piece of paper all those barriers almost as if justifying now why you are not living on a boat i'm not living on a boat because i'm not a sailor i'm not a skipper i don't know what how to sail yeah, yeah. but every single one of those things which we looked at and said what can we do about this one well you can start off by going on a course and learning to sail i mean that's how you start isn't it that's how anybody starts i mean you can become a sailor oh we can't afford it do you know how much it costs no well what, how, how can you say you can't afford it you don't even know how much it costs well, okay, how much is a boat? How much is this? How much is it? We worked out how much money we would need. Wow, okay, it's not as much as you think, but we still don't have enough. How much do we have? Don't know. All right. You don't even know how much money you've got. Yeah. You don't know. Oh, I have a car, I owe some money, but if I sold it, you know, house, got a mortgage, but, you know, and, oh, well, we've got more money than we thought. So now you know what the gap is. How much can you save every month? What can you do differently? How can you change your lifestyle to build up money? And we realized that if we were clever, we could have enough money in five years. So you go on a sailing course. You start learning to sail. You start investing your money properly. Five years, you'll have enough money. And then everything else just started falling into place. And within three months, the opportunity of a changing job to move down to Cape Town to the coast came up that I would never have got that job I would never have thought about it. But because we were so obsessed with going sailing around the world, when I heard about that job, I went straight to my boss and I said, listen, don't hire anybody, I'll do it. And I got transferred down to the coast, joined the sailing club, met some people with boats, learned to sail. And, and the other thing we did, which was very important, is we told everybody that we were going to go sailing around the it's world. Like, yeah, it's like uh, uh, quitting smoking. Yeah. Just tell everybody. Tell everyone. Yeah. yeah, because then everyone else puts the pressure on you and right. you have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so we told everybody. They said, what are you talking about? We're going sailing. We're going sailing around the world. So on what boat? Don't know. We haven't got a boat yet. You don't even know how to sail. No, but we'll learn. And they went, ah, oh, you know, whatever, whatever. And you see those people six months later and you say something about sailing around the world and they go, are you still talking about that? So yes, I was serious. And it almost got scary at one point. At one point, we looked at each other and we went, oh, my God, do you realize we really actually are going to do this? Like Because we, <laughs> we have to. And it was yeah. like, yes, okay, this is cool. <laughs> wow. So you make decisions, you know, you've, you've got to make decisions. Ryan did the same thing. It was really funny. It was just before we went sailing and Ryan 
and I were running in the mountains and we were talking about exactly this. And he was saying, yeah, he doesn't like his job. And I said, well, what would you like to do with your life? He says, I only just want to run. I just want to run on the mountains. I don't want to do anything else. I said, well, then that's your starting point. You know, you've got to work out how you make that work. And it worked. I'm not, I'm not saying I, you know, he probably would, he would have done it without me. But, uh, you know, he, he did the same thing. He decided what he wanted. Yeah. Would you recommend that for I, everyone? Can everyone do I this? Would. Mm. I, absolutely, I would. And it, it could be you want a coffee shop or it could be you want to do do you run your local 5K and maybe you had a bad accident and you've lost a lot of function in your legs and you want to do a marathon. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be a whole life-changing thing, but it works with anything. Mm. You're going into an argument. You know you're going to have an argument with somebody. Before you go in defending your position and arguing, and think how you want the encounter to end. Do you want to be friends afterwards? Do you? I mean, what is it you want? Right, out of you this can apply it to encounter? anything, and you work it backwards. Yeah, and it works. It absolutely works. Desired outcome. What is the outcome that you most desire from this problem? And then the emotion goes out of it because it becomes an intellectual exercise. I think we need to stop, Andrew. Because uh, <laughs> like yeah, no, it's not right, not man. because of you. It's uh, it's uh, we're we're having visitors here, and uh, yeah, uh, oh, cool. we uh, we should talk again. I think I think uh, yeah, I think we should. Yeah, I think we should. I think you've got a lot more running stories that I'd like to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll catch up. Uh, I'll call you tomorrow or something. We'll just have a debrief. All right, we'll talk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have a nice have a nice evening. Okay, my friend. Yeah. Good night. Bye. Nice Bye. chatting. Yeah, you Love too. You. Bye. Bye. I'm gonna be happy. How could I not? Sitting in my little canoe when I'm sailing along. Catch me laughing a lot That's the kind of thing that I do When I'm sailing along The beautiful river In a beautiful dream come true Oh, I don't care about the weather, no Let it rain, let it shine When I'm holding your hand I'll be feeling so grand Everything is gonna be just fine
make, 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 make a clap to this. <laughs> 